Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 7. The Slithering Shadow. Part 1. Chapter 1. The desert shimmered in the heat waves. Conan the Cimmerian stared out over the aching desolation and involuntarily drew the back of his powerful hand over his blackened lips. He stood like a bronze image in the sand, apparently impervious to the murderous sun, though his only garment was a silk loincloth girdled by a wide gold-buckled belt from which hung a sabre and a broad-bladed ponier. On his clean-cut limbs were evidences of scarcely healed wounds. At his feet rested a girl, one white arm clasping his knee, against which her blonde head drooped. Her white skin contrasted with his hard bronze limbs. Her short silken tunic, low-necked and sleeveless, girdled at the waist, emphasized rather than concealed her lithe figure. Conan shook his head, blinking. The sun's glare half-blinded him. He lifted a small canteen from his belt and shook it, scowling at the faint splashing within. The girl moved wearily, whimpering. Oh, Conan, we shall die here. I am so thirsty. The Cimmerian growled wordlessly, glaring truculently at the surrounding waste, with outthrust jaw and blue eyes smouldering savagely from under his black, tousled mane, as if the desert were a tangible enemy. He stooped and put the canteen to the girl's lips. Drink till I tell you to stop, Natala, he commanded. She drank with little panting gasps, and he did not check her. Only when the canteen was empty did she realize that he had deliberately allowed her to drink all their water supply, little enough that it was. Tears sprang to her eyes. Oh, Conan, she wailed, wringing her hands. Why did you let me drink it all? I did not know. I did not know. Now there is none for you. Hush, he growled. Don't waste your strength in weeping. Straightening, he threw Tantine from him. Why did you do that? she whispered. He did not reply, standing motionless and immobile, his fingers closing slowly about the hilt of his sabre. He was not looking at the girl. His fierce eyes seemed to plumb the mysterious purple hazes of the distance. Endowed with all the barbarian's ferocious love of life and instinct to live, Conan the Sumerian yet knew that he had reached the end of his trail. He had not come to the limits of his endurance, but he knew another day under the merciless sun in those waterless wastes would bring him down. As for the girl, she had suffered enough, better a quick painless sword stroke than the lingering agony that faced him. Her thirst was temporarily quenched. It was a false mercy to let her suffer until delirium and death brought relief. Slowly he slid the sabre from its sheath. He halted suddenly, stiffening. Far out on the desert to the south, something glimmered through the heat waves. At first he thought it was a phantom, one of the mirages which had mocked and maddened him in that accursed desert. Shading his sun-dazzled eyes, he made out spires and minarets and gleaming walls. He watched it grimly, waiting for it to fade and vanish. Natala had ceased to sob. She struggled to her knees and followed his gaze. Is it a city, Conan? she whispered, too fearful to hope. Or is it but a shadow? The Sumerian did not reply for a space. He closed and opened his eyes several times. He looked away, then back. 
The city remained where he had first seen it. The devil knows, he grunted. It's worth a try, though. He thrust the saber back in its sheath. Stooping, he lifted Natala in his mighty arms as though she had been an infant. She resisted weakly. Don't waste your strength carrying me, Conan, she pleaded. I can walk. The ground gets rockier here, he answered. You would soon wear your sandals to shreds, glancing at her soft green footwear. Besides, if we are to reach that city at all, we must do it quickly, and I can make better time this way. The chance for life had lent fresh vigor and resilience to the Sumerian's steely thews. He strode out across the sandy waste as if he had just begun the journey. A barbarian of barbarians, the vitality and endurance of the wild were his, granting him survival where civilized men would have perished. He and the girl were, so far as he knew, the sole survivors of Prince Almeric's army, that mad motley horde which, following the defeated rebel Prince of Koth, swept through the lands of Shem like a devastating sandstorm and drenched the outlands of Stygia with blood. With a Stygian host on its heels, it had cut its way through the Black Kingdom of Cush, only to be annihilated on the edge of the southern desert. Conan lightened it in his mind to a great torrent, dwindling gradually as it rushed southward to run dry at last in the sands of the naked desert. The bones of its members, mercenaries, outcasts, broken men, outlaws, lay strewn from the Cothic uplands to the dunes of the wilderness. From that final slaughter, when the Stygians and the Cushites closed in on the trapped remnants, Conan had cut his way clear and fled on a camel with the girl. Behind them, the land swarmed with enemies. The only way open to them was the desert to the south, into those menacing depths they had plunged. The girl was Brithunian, whom Conan had found in the slave market of a stormed Shemite city and appropriated. She had had nothing to say in the matter, but her new position was so far superior to the lot of any Hyborian woman in a Shemitish seraglio that she accepted it thankfully. So she had shared in the adventures of Almoric's damned horde. For days they had fled into the desert, pursued so far by Stygian horsemen that when they shook off the pursuit, they dared not turn back. They pushed on, seeking water, until the camel died. Then they went on foot. For the past few days, their suffering had been intense. Conan had shielded Natala all he could, and the rough life of the camp had given her more stamina and strength than the average woman possesses. But even so, she was not far from collapse. The sun beat fiercely on Conan's tangled black mane. Waves of dizziness and nausea rose in his brain, but he set his teeth and strode on unwaveringly. He was convinced that the city was a reality, and not a mirage. What they would find there, he had no idea. The inhabitants might be hostile. Nevertheless, it was a fighting chance, and that was as much as he had ever asked. The sun was nigh to setting when they halted in front of the massive gate, grateful for the shade. Conan stood Natala on her feet and stretched his aching arms. Above them, the walls towered some thirty feet in height, composed of a smooth greenish substance that shone almost like glass. Conan scanned the parapets, expecting to be challenged, but saw no one. Impatiently, he shouted and banged on the gate with his saber hilt, but only the hollow echoes mocked him. Natala cringed close to him, frightened by the silence. Conan tried the portal and stepped back, drawing his saber as it swung silently inward. Natala stifled a cry. Oh, look, Conan. Just inside the gate lay a human body. Conan glared at it narrowly, then looked beyond it. 
he saw a wide open expanse, like a court, bordered by the arched doorways of houses, composed of the same greenish material as the outer walls. These edifices were lofty and imposing, pinnacled with shining domes and minarets. There was no sign of life among them. In the centre of the court rose the square curb of a well, and the sight stung Conan, whose mouth felt caked with dry dust. Taking Natala's wrist, he drew her through the gate and closed it behind them. Is he dead? she whispered, shrinkingly indicating the man who lay limply before the gate. The body was that of a tall, powerful individual, apparently in his prime. The skin was yellow, the eyes slightly slanted. Otherwise the man differed little from the Hyborian type. He was clad in high-strapped sandals and a tunic of purple silk, and a short sword in a cloth of gold scabbard hung from his girdle. Conan felt his flesh. It was cold. There was no sign of life in the body. Not a wound on him, grunted the Cimmerian, but he's dead as Almuric with forty Stygian arrows in him. In Crom's name, let's see to the well. If there's water in it, well drink, dead men or not. There was water in the well, but they did not drink of it. Its level was a good fifty feet below the curb, and there was nothing to draw it up with. Conan cursed blackly, maddened by the sight of the stuff just out of his reach, and turned to look for some means of obtaining it. Then a scream from Natala brought him about. A supposedly dead man was rushing upon him, eyes blazing with indisputable life, his short sword gleaming in his hand. Conan cursed amazedly, but wasted no time in conjecture. He met the hurtling attacker with a slashing cut of his sabre that sheared through flesh and bone. The fellow's head thudded on the flags. The body staggered drunkenly, an arch of blood jetting from the severed jugular. Then it fell heavily. Conan glared down, swearing softly. This fellow is no deader now than he was a few minutes agone. Into what madhouse have we strayed? Matala, who had covered her eyes with her hands at the sight, peeked between her fingers and shook with fear. Oh, Conan, will the people of the city not kill us because of this? Well, he growled, this creature would have killed us if I hadn't lopped off his head. He glanced at the archways that gaped blankly from the green walls above them. He saw no hint of movement, heard no sound. I don't think anyone saw us, he muttered. I'll hide the evidence. He lifted the limp carcass by its sword belt with one hand, and grasping the head by its long hair in the other, he half carried, half dragged, the ghastly remains over to the well. Since we can't drink this water, he gritted vindictively, I'll see that nobody else enjoys drinking it. Curse such a well, anyway. He heaved the body over the curb and let it drop, tossing the head after it. A dull splash sounded far beneath. There's blood on the stones, whispered Natala. There'll be more unless I find water soon, growled the Cimmerian, his short store of patience about exhausted. The girl had almost forgotten her thirst and hunger in her fear, but not Conan. We'll go into one of these doors, he said. Surely we'll find people after a while. Oh, Conan, she wailed, snuggling up as close to him as she could. I'm afraid. This is a city of ghosts and dead men. Let us go back into the desert. Better to die there than to face these terrors. We'll go into the desert when they throw us off the walls, he snarled. There's water somewhere in this city, and I'll find it if I have to kill every man in it. But what if they come to life again, she whispered. Then I'll keep killing them until they stay dead, he snapped. Come on, that doorway is as good as another. Stay behind me, but don't run unless I tell you to. She murmured a faint assent 
and followed him so closely that she stepped on his heels. To his irritation, dusk had fallen, filling the strange city with purple shadows. They entered the open doorway and found themselves in a wide chamber, the walls of which were hung with velvet tapestries, worked in curious designs. Floor, walls, and ceiling were of the green, glassy stone, the walls decorated with gold friesework. Furs and satin cushions littered the floor. Several doorways let into other rooms. They passed through and traversed several chambers, counterparts of the first. They saw no one, but the Sumerian grunted suspiciously. Someone was here not long ago. This couch is still warm from contact with a human body. That silk cushion bears the imprint of someone's hips. Then there's a faint scent of perfume lingering in the air. A weird, unreal atmosphere hung over all. Traversing this dim, silent palace was like an opium dream. Some of the chambers were unlighted, and these they avoided. Others were bathed in a soft, weird light that seemed to emanate from jewels set in the walls in fantastic designs. Suddenly, as they passed into one of these illumined chambers, Natala cried out and clutched her companion's arm. With a curse, he wheeled, glaring for an enemy, bewildered because he saw none. What's the matter? he snarled. If you ever grab my sword arm again, I'll skin you. Do you want me to get my throat cut? What were you yelling about? Look there, she quavered, pointing. Conan grunted. On a table of polished ebony stood golden vessels, apparently containing food and drink. The room was unoccupied. Well, whoever this feast is prepared for, he growled, they'll have to look elsewhere tonight. Dare we eat it, Conan? ventured the girl nervously. The people might come upon us and... Lyra Mananan Maglira, he swore, grabbing her by the nape of her neck and thrusting her into a gilded chair at the end of the table with no great ceremony. We starve and you make objections. Eat. He took the chair at the other end and, seizing a jade goblet, emptied it at a gulp. It contained a crimson wine-like liquor of a peculiar tang, unfamiliar to him, but it was like nectar to his parched gullet. His thirst allayed. He attacked the food before him with rare gusto. It too was strange to him, exotic fruits and unknown meats. The vessels were of exquisite workmanship, and they were golden knives and forks as well. These Conan ignored, grasping the meat joints in his fingers and tearing them with his strong teeth. The Sumerian's table manners were rather wolfish at any time. His civilized companion ate more daintily, but just as ravenously, it occurred to Conan that the food might be poisoned, but the thought did not lessen his appetite. He preferred to die of poisoning rather than starvation. His hunger satisfied, he leaned back with a deep sigh of relief. That there were humans in that silent city was evidenced by the fresh food, and perhaps every dark corner concealed a lurking enemy. But he felt no apprehension on that score, having a large confidence in his own fighting ability. He began to feel sleepy, and considered the idea of stretching himself on a nearby couch for a nap. Not so, Natala. She was no longer hungry and thirsty, but she felt no desire to sleep. Her lovely eyes were very wide indeed as she timidly glanced at the doorways, boundaries of the unknown. The silence and mystery of the strange place preyed on her. The chamber seemed larger, the table longer than she had first noticed, and she realized that she was farther from her grim protector than she wished to be. Rising quickly, she went around the table and seated herself on his knee, glancing nervously at the arched doorways. Some were lighted, and some were not, and it was at the unlighted ones she gazed longest. We have eaten, drunk, and rested, she urged. 
Let us leave this place, Conan. It's evil. I can feel it. Well, we haven't been harmed so far, he began, when a soft but sinister rustling brought him about. Thrusting the girl off his knee, he rose with the quick ease of a panther, drawing his saber, facing the doorway from which the sound had seemed to come. It was not repeated, and he stole forward, noiselessly, Natala following with her heart in her mouth. She knew he suspected peril. His outthrust head was sunk between his giant shoulders. He glided forward in a half-crouch, like a stalking tiger. He made no more noise than a tiger would have made. At the doorway he halted, Natala peering fearfully from behind him. There was no light in the room, but it was partially illuminated by the radiance behind them, which streamed across it into yet another chamber. And in this chamber, a man lay on a raised dais. The soft light bathed him, and they saw he was a counterpart of the man Conan had killed before the outer gate, except that his garments were richer and ornamented with jewels which twinkled in the uncanny light. Was he dead or merely sleeping? Again came that faint sinister sound, as if someone had thrust aside a hanging. Conan drew back, drawing the clinging Natala with him. He clapped his hand over her mouth just in time to check her shriek. From where they now stood, they could no longer see the dais, but they could see the shadow it cast on the wall behind it. And now another shadow moved across the wall, a huge, shapeless black blot. Conan felt his hair prickle curiously as he watched. Distorted though it might be, he felt that he had never seen a man or beast which cast such a shadow. He was consumed with curiosity, but some instinct held him frozen in his tracks. He heard Natala's quick panting gasps as she stared with dilated eyes. No other sound disturbed the tense stillness. The great shadow engulfed that of the dais. For a long instant, only its black bulk was thrown on the smooth wall. Then slowly it receded, and once more the dais was etched darkly against the wall, but the sleeper was no longer upon it. An hysterical gurgle rose in Natala's throat, and Conan gave her an admonitory shake. He was aware of an iciness in his own veins. Human foes he did not fear. Anything understandable, however grisly, caused no tremors in his broad breast. But this was beyond his ken. After a while, however, his curiosity conquered his uneasiness, and he moved out into the unlighted chamber again, ready for anything. Looking into the other room, he saw it was empty. The dais stood as he had first seen it, except that no bejeweled human lay thereon. Only on its silken covering shone a single drop of blood, like a great crimson gem. Natala saw it, and gave a low choking cry, for which Conan did not punish her. Again he felt the icy hand of fear. On that dais a man had lain. Something had crept into the chamber and carried him away. What that something was, Conan had no idea, but an aura of unnatural horror hung over those dim-lit chambers. He was ready to depart. Taking Natala's hand, he turned back, then hesitated. Somewhere back among the chambers they had traversed, he heard the sound of a footfall. A human foot, bare or softly shod, had made that sound, and Conan, with the wariness of a wolf, turned quickly aside. He believed he could come again into the outer court, and yet avoid the room from which the sound had appeared to come. But they had not crossed the first chamber on their new route, when the rustle of a silken hanging brought them about suddenly. Before a curtained alcove stood a man, eyeing them intently. He was exactly like the others they had encountered. Tall, well-made, clad in purple garments, with a jeweled girdle. There was neither surprise nor hostility in his amber eyes. 
They were dreamy as a lotus eater's. He did not draw the short sword at his side. After a tense moment, he spoke in a faraway detached tone and a language his hearers did not understand. On a venture, Conan replied in Stygian, and the stranger answered in the same tongue. Who are you? I am Conan, a Sumerian, answered the barbarian. This is Natala of Brithunia. What city is this? The man did not at once reply. His dreamy, sensuous gaze rested on Natala, and he drawled, Of all my rich visions, this is the strangest. Oh, girl of the golden locks, from what far dreamland do you come? From Andara, or Tothra, or Cuth of the Star Girdle. What madness is this? growled the Sumerian harshly, not relishing the man's words or manner. The other did not heed him. I have dreamed more gorgeous beauties, he murmured. Lithe women with hair dusky as night and dark eyes of unfathomed mystery. But your skin is white as milk, your eyes as clear as dawn. And there is about you a freshness and daintiness alluring as honey. Come to my couch, little dream, girl. He advanced and reached for her, and Conan struck aside his hand with a force that might have broken his arm. The man reeled back, clutching the numbed member, his eyes clouding. What rebellion of ghosts is this? he muttered. Barbarian, I command ye. Begone. Fade. Dissipate. Fade. Vanish. I'll vanish your head from your shoulders, snarled the infuriated Cimmerian, his saber gleaming in his hand. Is this the welcome you give, strangers? By Crom, I'll drench these hangings in blood. The dreaminess had faded from the other's eyes, to be replaced by a look of bewilderment. Dog, he ejaculated. You are real. Once come you. Who are you? What do you and Zothal? We came from the desert, Conan growled. We wandered into the city at dusk, famishing. We found a feast set for someone and we ate it. I have no money to pay for it. In my country, no starving man is denied food, but you civilized people must have your recompense. If you were like all I ever met, we have done no harm and we were just leaving. Bakram, I do not like this place, where dead men rise and sleeping men vanish into the bellies of shadows. The man started violently at the last comment, his yellow face turning ashy. What do you say? Shadows? Into the bellies of shadows? Well, answered the Sumerian cautiously, whatever it is that takes a man from a sleeping dais and leaves only a spot of blood. You have seen. You have seen. The man was shaking like a leaf. His voice cracked on the high-pitched note. Only a man sleeping on a dais, and a shadow that engulfed him, answered Conan. The effect of his words on the other was horrifying. With an awful scream, the man turned and rushed from the chamber. In his blind haste, he caromed from the side of the door, righted himself, and fled through the adjoining chambers, still screaming at the top of his voice. Amazed, Conan stared after him, the girl trembling as she clutched the giant's arm. They could no longer see the flying figure, but they still heard his frightful screams, dwindling in the distance and echoing as from vaulted roofs. Suddenly one cry, louder than the others, rose and broke short, followed by blank silence. Crom! Conan wiped the perspiration from his forehead with a hand that was not entirely steady. Surely this is a city of the mad. Let's get out of here before we meet other madmen. It is all a nightmare, whimpered Natala. We are dead and damned. We died out on the desert and are in hell. 
We are disembodied spirits. Ow! A yelp was induced by a resounding spank from Conan's open hand. You're no spirit when a pack makes you yell like that, he commented with the grim humor, which frequently manifested itself at inopportune times. We are alive, though we may not be if we loiter in this devil-haunted pile. Come, come. They had traversed but a single chamber when again they stopped short. Someone or something was approaching. They faced the doorway once the sounds came, waiting for they knew not what. Conan's nostrils widened, and his eyes narrowed. He caught the faint scent of the perfume he had noticed earlier in the night. A figure framed itself in the doorway. Conan swore under his breath. Vitala's red lips opened wide. It was a woman who stood there staring at them in wonder. She was tall, lithe, shaped like a goddess, clad in a narrow girdle crusted with jewels. A burnished mass of night-black hair set off the whiteness of her ivory body. Her dark eyes, shaded by long, dusky lashes, were deep with sensuous mystery. Conan caught his breath at her beauty, and Natala stared with dilated eyes. The Cimmerian had never seen such a woman. Her facial outline was Stygian, but she was not dusky-skinned like the Stygian women he had known. Her limbs were like alabaster. But when she spoke in a deep, rich, musical voice, it was in the Stygian tongue. Who are you? What do you and Zulf are? Who is that girl? Who are you? Bluntly countered Conan, who quickly wearied of answering questions. I am Thallus the Stygian, she replied. Are you mad to come here? I've been thinking I must be, he growled. By Crom, if I am sane, I'm out of place here because these people are all maniacs. We stagger in from the desert, dying of thirst and hunger, and we come upon a dead man who tries to stab me in the back. We enter a palace rich and luxuriant, yet apparently empty. We find a meal set, but with no feasters. Then we see a shadow devour a sleeping man. He watched her narrowly and saw her change color slightly. Well... Well, what? she demanded, apparently regaining control of herself. I was just waiting for you to run through the rooms, howling like a wild woman, he answered. The man I told about the shadow did. She shrugged her slim, ivory shoulders. That was the screams I heard then. Well, to every man his fate, and it's foolish to squeal like a rat in a trap. When Thog wants me, he will come for me. Who is Thog? demanded Conan suspiciously. She gave him a long, appraising stare that brought color to Natala's face and made her bite her small red lip. Sit down on that divan and I will tell you, she said. But first, tell me your names. I am Conan, a uh, Cimmerian, and this is Natala, a daughter of Brithunia, he answered. We are refugees of an army destroyed on the borders of Kush, but I am not desirous of sitting down where black shadows might steal up on my back. With a light musical laugh, she seated herself, stretching out her supple limbs with studied abandon. Be at ease, she advised. If Thug wishes you, he will take you wherever you are. That man you mentioned who screamed and ran. Did you not hear him give one great cry and then fall silent? In his frenzy, he must have run full into that which he sought to escape. No man can avoid his fate. Colin grunted non-committally. But he sat down on the edge of a couch, his saber across his knees, his eyes wandering suspiciously about the chamber. Natala nestled against him, clutching him jealously, her legs tucked up under her. She eyed the stranger woman with suspicion and resentment. 
She felt small and dust-stained and insignificant before this glamorous beauty, and she could not mistake the look in the dark eyes which feasted on every detail of the bronze giant's physique. What is this place and who are these people? demanded Conan. This city is called Zothal. It is very ancient. It is built over an oasis which the founders of Zothal found in their wanderings. They came from the east so long ago that not even their descendants remember the age. Surely there are not many of them. These palaces seem empty. No, and yet more than you might think. The city is really one great palace, with every building inside the walls closely connected with the others. You might walk among these chambers for hours and see no one. At other times, you would meet hundreds of the inhabitants. How is that? Conan inquired uneasily. This savoured too strongly of sorcery for comfort. Much of the time these people lie in sleep. Their dream life is as important, and to them as real, as their waking life. You have heard of the Black Lotus. In certain pits of the city it grows. Through the ages they have cultivated it, until instead of death, its juice induces dreams, gorgeous and fantastic. In these dreams they spend most of their time. Their lives are vague, erratic, and without plan. They dream, they wake, drink, love, eat, and dream again. They seldom finish anything they begin, but leave it half-completed and sink back again into the slumber of the Black Lotus. That meal you found, doubtless one awoke, felt the urge of hunger, prepared the meal for himself, then forgot about it and wandered away to dream again. Where do they get their food? interrupted Conan. I saw no fields or vineyards outside the city. Have they orchards and cattle pens within the walls? She shook her head. They manufacture their own food out of the primal elements. They are wonderful scientists when they are not drugged with their dream flower. Their ancestors were mental giants who built this marvelous city in the desert, and though the race became slaves to their curious passion, some of their wonderful knowledge still remains. Have you wondered about these lights? They are jewels fused with radium. You rub them with your thumb to make them glow and rub them again, the opposite way to extinguish them. That is but a single example of their science, but much they have forgotten. They take little interest in waking life, choosing to lie most of the time in death-like sleep. Then the dead man at the gate, began Conan, was doubtless slumbering. Sleepers of the lotus are like the dead. Animation is apparently suspended. It is impossible to detect the slightest sign of life. The spirit has left the body and is roaming at will through other exotic worlds. The man at the gate was a good example of the irresponsibility of these people's lives. He was guarding the gate where custom decrees a watch be kept, though no enemy has ever advanced across the desert. In other parts of the city you would find other guards, generally sleeping as soundly as the man at the gate. Conan mulled over this for a space. Where are the people now? Scattered in different parts of the city, lying on couches, on silken divans, in cushion-littered alcoves, on fur-covered daisies, all wrapped in the shining veil of dreams. Conan felt the skin twitch between his massive shoulders. It was not soothing to think of hundreds of people lying cold and still throughout the tapestried palaces, their glassy eyes turned unseeingly upward. He remembered something else. What of the thing that stole through the chambers and carried away the man on the dais? A shudder twitched her ivory limbs. That was Varg, the ancient, the god of Zothal, who dwells in the sunken dome in the center of the city. He has always knelt in Zothal, 
Whether he came here with the ancient founders, or was here when they built the city, none knows. But the people of Zothal worship him. Mostly he sleeps below the city, but sometimes at irregular intervals he grows hungry, and then he steals through the secret corridors and the dim-lit chambers, seeking prey. Then none is safe. Yatala moaned with terror and clasped Conan's mighty neck as if to resist an effort to drag her from her protector's side. Crum, he ejaculated aghast. You mean to tell me these people lie down calmly and sleep with this demon crawling among them? It is only occasionally that he is hungry, she repeated. A god must have his sacrifices. When I was a child in Stygia, the people lived under the shadow of the priests. None ever knew when he or she would be seized and dragged to the altar. What difference whether the priests give a victim to the gods, or the god comes for his own victim? Such is not the custom of my people, Conan growled, nor of Natala's either. The Hyborians do not sacrifice humans to their god, Mitra, and as for my people, Bikrom, I'd like to see a priest try to drag a Cimmerian to the altar. There'd be blood spilt, but not as the priest intended. You are a barbarian, laughed Thalys, but with a glow in her luminous eyes. Dog is very ancient and very terrible. These folk must be either fools or heroes, grunted Conan, to lie down and dream their idiotic dreams, knowing they might awaken in his belly. She laughed. They know nothing else, for untold generations Thog has preyed on them. He has been one of the factors which have reduced their numbers from thousands to hundreds. A few more generations and they will be extinct. And Dog must either fare forth into the world for new prey, or retire to the underworld whence he came so long ago. They realize their ultimate doom, but they are fatalists, incapable of resistance or escape. Not one of the present generation has been out of sight of these walls. There is an oasis a day's march to the south. I have seen it on the old maps their ancestors drew on parchment, but no man of Zuthal has visited it for three generations, much less made any attempt to explore the fertile grasslands which the maps show lying another day's march beyond it. They are a fast-fading race, drowned in lotus dreams, stimulating their waking hours by means of the golden wine, which heals wounds, prolongs life, and invigorates the most sated debauchee. Yet they cling to life and fear the deity they worship. You saw how one went mad at the knowledge that Vog was roving the palaces. I have seen the whole city screaming and tearing its hair and running frenziedly out of the gates to cower outside the walls and draw lots to see which would be bound and flung back through the arched doorways to satisfy Thog's lust and hunger. Were they not all slumbering now, the word of his coming would send them raving and shrieking again through the outer gates. O oh, Conan, begged Natale hysterically, let us flee. In good time, muttered Conan, his eyes burning on Thallus's ivory limbs. What are you, a Stygian woman, doing here? I came here when a young girl, she answered, leaning lithely back against the velvet divan and intertwining her slender fingers behind her dusky head. I am the daughter of a king, no common woman, as you can see by my skin, which is as wide as that of your little blonde there. I was abducted by a rebel prince who, with an army of Cushite bowmen, pushed southward into the wilderness, searching for a land he could make his own. He and all his warriors perished in the desert, but one, before he died, placed me on a camel and walked beside it until he dropped and died in his tracks. The beast wandered on, and I finally passed into delirium from thirst and hunger, 
and awakened in this city. They told me I had been seen from the walls, early in the dawn, lying senseless beside a dead camel. They went forth and brought me in and revived me with their wonderful golden wine. And only the sight of a woman would have led them to have ventured that far from their walls. They were naturally much interested in me, especially the men. As I could not speak their language, they learned to speak mine. They are very quick and able of intellect. They learned my language long before I learned theirs, but they were more interested in me than in my language. I have been, and am, the only thing for which a man of them will forgo his lotus dreams for a space. She laughed wickedly, flashing her audacious eyes meaningly at Conan. Of course the women are jealous of me, she continued tranquilly. They are handsome enough in their yellow-skinned way, but they are dreamy and uncertain as the men, and these latter like me, not only for my beauty, but for my reality, I am no dream. Though I have dreamed the dreams of the lotus, I am a normal woman, with earthly emotions and desires, with such these moon-eyed yellow women cannot compare. That is why it would be better for you to cut that girl's throat with your saber before the men of Zothul waken and catch her. They will put her through paces she never dreamed of. She is too soft to endure what I have thrived on. I am a daughter of Luxure, and before I had known fifteen summers, I had been led through the temples of Durketo, the dusky goddess, and had been initiated into the mysteries. Not that my first years in Zothil were years of unmodified pleasure. The people of Zothil have forgotten more than the priestesses of Durketo ever dreamed. They live only for sensual joys. Dreaming or waking, their lives are filled with exotic ecstasies, beyond the ken of ordinary men. Damn degenerates, growled Conan. It is all in the point of view, smiled Thallis lazily. Well, he decided, we're merely wasting time. I can see this is no place for ordinary mortals. We'll be gone before your morons awake or fog comes to devour us. I think the desert would be kinder. Natala whose blood had curdled in her veins at Thallus's words, fervently agreed. He could speak Stygian only brokenly, but she understood it well enough. Conan stood up, drawing her up beside him. If you'll show us the nearest way out of this city, he grunted, we'll take ourselves off. But his gaze lingered on the Stygian's sleek limbs and ivory breasts. She did not miss his look, and she smiled enigmatically as she rose with the lithe ease of a great lazy cat. Follow me, she directed and led the way, conscious of Conan's eyes fixed on her supple figure and perfectly poised carriage. She did not go the way they had come, but before Conan's suspicions could be roused, she halted in a wide ivory-cased chamber and pointed to a tiny fountain which gurgled in the center of the ivory floor. Don't you want to wash your face, child? she asked Natala. It is stained with dust, and there is dust in your hair. Natala coloured resentfully at the suggestion of malice in the Stygian's faintly mocking tone, but she complied, wondering miserably just how much havoc the desert sun and wind had wrought on her complexion, a feature for which women of her race were justly noted. She knelt beside the fountain, shook back her hair, slipped her tunic down to her waist, and began to lave not only her face, but her white arms and shoulders as well. By Kram, grumbled Conan. A woman will stop to consider her beauty if the devil himself were on her heels. Haste, girl, you'll be dusty again before we got out of sight of this city. And Thallis, it'd take it kindly if you'd furnish us with a bit of food and drink. For answer, Thallis leaned herself against him, slipping one white arm about his bronzed shoulders. 
Her sleek, naked flank pressed against his thigh, and the perfume of her foamy hair was in his nostrils. Why dare the desert? she whispered urgently. Stay here. I will teach you the ways of Zuthil. I will protect you. I will love you. You are a real man. I am sick of these moon calves who sigh and dream and wake and dream again. I am hungry for the hard, clean passion of a man from the earth. The blaze of your dynamic eyes makes my heart pound in my bosom, and the touch of your iron-thewed arm maddens me. Stay here. I will make you king of Zuthil. I will show you all the ancient mysteries and the exotic ways of pleasure. I... She had thrown both arms about his neck and was standing on tiptoe, her vibrant body shivering against his. Over her ivory shoulder, he saw Natala throwing back her damp, tousled hair, stop short, her lovely eyes dilating, her red lips parting in a shocked O. With an embarrassed grunt, Conan disengaged Thalys's clinging arms and put her aside with one massive arm. She threw a swift glance at the Brithunian girl and smiled enigmatically, seeming to nod her splendid head in mysterious cogitation. Gatala rose and jerked up her tunic, her eyes blazing, her lips pouting sulkily. Conan swore under his breath. He was no more monogamous in his nature than the average soldier of fortune, but there was an innate decency about him that was Natala's best protection. Thallis did not press her suit. Beckoning them with her slender hand to follow, she turned and walked across the chamber. There, close to the tapestried wall, she halted suddenly. Conan, watching her, wondered if she had heard the sounds that might be made by a nameless monster stealing through the midnight chambers, and his skin crawled at the thought. What do you hear? he demanded. Watch that doorway, she replied, pointing. He wheeled, sword ready. Only the empty arch of the entrance met his gaze. Then behind him sounded a quick, faint scuffling noise, a half-choked gasp. He whirled. Thallis and Natala had vanished. The tapestry was settling back in place, as if it had been lifted away from the wall. As he gaped bewilderedly from behind that tapestried wall rang a muffled scream in the voice of the Brithunian girl. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 